Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org, and you can see the club's videos, as you know, on YouTube and catch up with us on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm Anya Manuel. I'm the co-founder and partner at Rice Hadley Gates, and I also teach at Stanford, and I'm your moderator for today's program. I'm now pleased to introduce today's distinguished guest, Dr. Larry Diamond, who's a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, a professor at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. He's also, importantly, the author of this fantastic new book called Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. In 1974, Larry tells us, nearly three-quarters of all governments were dictatorships. Today, more than half are democracies. Yet by most measures, there are now 25 fewer democracies than there were at the turn of the century. Is democracy in decline? And if so, what has contributed to its recent regression? Larry, who's also the founding co-editor of the Journal of Democracy and a professor of political science and sociology at Stanford, has dedicated most of his life to answering these very important questions. Dr. Diamond previously served as a consultant to USAID, our development agencies, and has advised both the World Bank, the UN, the State Department, and many other government and non-governmental agencies. His newest book takes a strong stance, namely that the defense of democracy depends on U.S. global leadership. But before the U.S. can fulfill, fulfill this role, Larry says that American democracy itself must be reformed from the inside. He has concrete ideas to reduce polarization, reduce the influence of money in politics, and make elections fairer, both in the U.S. and abroad. And boy, do we need it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So today, we're going to have a conversation with one of the most respected scholars of democracy about its apparent decline, the challenges it faces, and how we can best protect it. Please welcome Dr. Larry Diamond. Thank you. So, Larry, I thought we'd start by opening it just up to you to talk about the main themes in the book, of which there are many. And then I have many questions for you, and I'm sure the audience won't be shy either. So with that, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Anya. And thank you uh, for uh, your willingness to uh, moderate and lead this discussion. Uh, The title uh, implies three ill winds, uh, Russian rage, Chinese ambition, and American complacency. You know, uh, literary personalities and publishers are very literary personalities, like to to limit lists to three, but there's really a fourth that precedes and suffuses this, which is the general kind of rise of illiberal populism around the world, and, you know, uh, alarmingly, in many advanced industrial democracies, not least Europe uh, and, of course, the United States, which circles us back to American complacency. 
So let me begin with that ill wind and um, with the general phenomenon of democracy eroding, democracy in recession, if not in decline. Decline implies a kind of teleological direction downward, and it, it is certainly not irreversible, but we've been in, I think, a period of stagnation and erosion of democracy and freedom in the world, probably for a decade now. And what worries me, Anya, and what I try and articulate in the book is that this is gathering momentum. We're seeing more and more uh, established democracies retreating and eroding, uh, or at least moving in a more illiberal direction. First of all, we've lost a number of important democracies in the world. There was a time when Turkey was a serious, if not fully liberal, democracy. And I think it crossed the threshold of dissent into to authoritarianism probably at least five years ago. But with the coup attempt uh, in Turkey, uh, Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Erdogan felt, well, why even bother anymore pretending? And he's become uh, pretty much a nakedly and extremely repressive ruler. There are more journalists in jail in Turkey today than in any country in the world. And Turkey is our NATO ally and indeed the, the uh, biggest country other than the United States in NATO. You know very well from your experience how important uh, Turkey is. But it's not the only NATO country that's no longer a democracy. We now have a member state of the European Union namely Hungary under Viktor Orban, that is no longer an electoral democracy. Orban says uh, with his uh, war on immigrants, his war on opposition, his war on the media, his war on the independent judiciary, his hyper-politicization of the civil service, um, Orban says, I'm just building another model of democracy uh, in illiberal democracy. But this has gone to the point in terms of the violation, distortion, and twisting of democratic norms and democratic institutional structures and permanent changes in the Constitution that this is no longer an illiberal democracy. It's now an illiberal non-democracy, and he has to be challenged uh, in this regard. And if you look at what Orban has been saying and doing, what Erdogan has been saying and doing, what the Law and Justice Party in Poland now has been attempting to do, you see a pattern, uh, which I call in the book the Autocrats 12-step program, where you, uh, you start by demonizing the media as the enemy of the people. Uh, then you go to work on the courts and you try to politicize them and bend them to your will. You try to uh, demonize the opposition as disloyal to the country and really the enemy of the people as well. And you put pressure on them and the businesses that are supporting them uh, to bend to the will of the incipient autocrat. And you start working on institution after institution, the, the civil service, uh, the intelligence uh, agencies and so on, and it's a constant campaign of politicization, uh, uh, demonization of the opposition, and subversion of checks and balances in one arena after another. And pretty soon, 
again, it's not illiberal, it's undemocratic. And if you look at the list of means by which these kinds of autocrats, going all the way back to Putin, much more rapidly pulling this off in Russia, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, the individuals I've mentioned, uh, now we have Rodrigo Duterte in uh, the Philippines, who's well along in this process of uh, subverting and burying democracy in the Philippines. It's a very, very alarming trend. And people look at this list. Uh, I invite my readers to just ponder this, but many people have volunteered of 12 autocratic steps to subvert checks and balances, the rule of law, the spirit of democracy, the norms and kind of soft guardrails of fidelity to democratic constitutional principles, and many people see a lot of uh, familiarity in terms of what's happening in the United States. And Let me me jump in here with one question, because I saw everyone's eyes lighting up and saying, wow, this is the the 12-step program we're seeing in the United States. The United States, however, has a over 200-year democratic tradition, unlike Turkey and certainly Hungary and Poland, some of the younger democracies where the institutions aren't as firm, the norms aren't as strong. Right. When do you reach the tipping point in a much more established democracy like the U.S.? Well, the problem is it's hard to know. And the dilemma for someone like me trying to call attention to these global trends and to uh, these, uh, the, the kind of incremental process of decay is that it's hard to know when you've approached the brink of descent into something very different, something much more seriously and tragically authoritarian until you're there. One of the things I would stress that I think is a very important lesson from these cases is a quote from Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises. When a character in the book uh, is asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Uh, And if you look at what happened in Hungary, what happened over a long period of time in Turkey, uh, what's happened in Bangladesh, where I think the country is also now descended below the threshold of democracy, and I think what's happening now before our eyes in the Philippines and maybe in, in Poland, if the Law and Justice Party has its way, there is this phenomenon of a gradual incremental slide, uh, a deterioration in norms, an erosion of institutional safeguards. And people say, well, it's not that bad. We still live in a democracy. We don't like this system of government. There is an air of, this is why I use the word complacency. Mm -hmm. And then one day they wake up, as they have in Hungary now, and they realize that they're living in something qualitatively different. I am not suggesting... Even though the moniker is the same. We, we yeah, well, I mean, anyone can continues. adopt a moniker and claim to be a democracy. I mean, you have 
What is the name of the North Korean regime? The DP, you know this very well as well, the DPRK, the Democratic uh, People's Republic of Korea. East Germany Uh, was the German Democratic Republic. Right. The (laughs) fact that a country calls itself uh, a democracy is meaningless unless the content is there and the real, uh, as I said, fidelity to democratic constitutional principles. I am not suggesting we're on the edge of authoritarianism in the United States of America, but I am deeply concerned about, first of all, the hyper-polarization and politicization of our political life in the United States, which has been a long trend of dissent uh, that did not begin with Donald Trump. It well precedes him. And you can't get polarization as a one-way street. There has been a reciprocal process underway. Uh, And the qualitative change with Donald Trump toward greater contempt toward institutions, and I think if you read the second half of the Mueller report, toward the rule of law. Uh, And uh, I think we've got to have a much more vigorous response to this. And it's not just with respect to how we're treating Russia or how we're treating checks and balances. Look at what is happening in the United States of America half a century after the adoption of the Voting Rights Act uh, in terms of deliberate efforts to suppress the vote of uh, minorities in the United States and of people that certain secretaries of state in certain states like Georgia and Kansas think are going to vote against their party. And this is so profoundly, egregiously, intolerably undemocratic that if we don't mobilize against this now, I think we are failing in our obligation as democratic citizens. But we have to go beyond that in terms of the challenges before us in the United States to, uh, for a broader uh, response to undemocratic practices. You know, gerrymandering, which fortunately we got rid of in the state of California through a voter initiative, you will remember some years ago, uh, a, a real step forward, I think, for democracy in California, and which some other states are getting rid of now, Michigan has recently, by voter initiative. Gerrymandering is not standing still. It's always been an obscene and unseemly, and I think in terms of the spirit of democracy, undemocratic practice. In most countries in the United States, you have professional nonpartisan electoral commissions that are drawing electoral district boundaries. Politicians should not be drawing their own district boundaries. And legislatures collectively should not be doing so to try and advantage one party themselves over another. Uh, But what's happened is in the digital age of so much data available to the people at a micro level of district uh, formation drawing these boundaries, you can now gerrymander to a level of surgical precision that is unprecedented, which is just to complete the thought, uh, which is now enabling someone like the leader of the uh, House of uh, Representatives or the, the state legislature in North Carolina to walk out of this exercise uh, after drawing uh, the electoral district boundaries, by the way, in response to a court order that said in between the two decennial censuses, 
you have to redraw the electoral district boundaries because they were so outrageously fair before, unfair before, and then the state legislature dominated by the Republican Party, redraws the district boundaries, and the leader of the state legislature says publicly, the only reason why we drew a plan that gave the Republican Party 10 of the 13 congressional seats in North Carolina is that because we couldn't figure out a way to give the Republicans an 11th seat. I rest my case. <laughs> so we've, let's stick on the U.S. for a minute because uh-huh. we're, we're starting down and we have several questions on this. You've dug in really deep on gerrymandering. Let's talk a little bit more. You just mentioned polarization in the Congress. Can you say a bit more about where it comes from, how deep it goes, and what we could do about it? Well... I think I agree with my colleague uh, at the Hoover Institution, Mo Fiorina, a great political scientist, uh, who has a great book about this uh, out from the Hoover Press a couple years ago on stable majorities, that it is more of an elite phenomenon than a mass phenomenon, that the most intense level of polarization is at the level of... um, political activists, campaign donors, which you have studied and uh, thought about in your, in your own work uh, for political reform in the United States, Anya, and um, party activists. They're the most polarized, the most militant, the most demanding of a hard line. So think about what this means for the American political system. We nominate our candidates for any state or national office, uh, municipal is a little bit different, in party primaries. Uh, Generally, huh? Often closed, rather. Uh, Often closed, but always low turnout. Mm -hmm. Always low turnout. Who comes out to vote in low turnout party primaries? It's the most activist, the most committed, uh, and the most ideologically separated uh, between... further left and further right. And by the way, that's who dominates campaign giving as well, as you know. So this is then likely to produce and is increasingly producing. You could see the trend on the right in the Republican Party. We're now seeing it on the left in the Democratic Party. Candidates emerging out of the two primaries who are you know, further to the left than than the median voter, further to the right than the median voter, and presenting an increasingly starkly polarized choice to the electorate and voting in increasingly polarized ways. The candidates are feeling pressed to vote even more polarized than they really are and they really feel because they know that they will not win again Uh, Their primary, take, for example, the Republican Party, the Tea Party, the current incumbents, if they don't adhere to this more militant party line. Do you know now that the one Republican who's come out and and endorsed impeachment of Donald Trump, Justin Amash uh, in Michigan, is apparently in the latest poll losing in a landslide to his Republican declared primary uh, opponent, who's a nobody, nobody's ever heard of this person, except he's pro-Trump 
And this congressman, who's the one Republican congressman who's come out against Trump, uh, is not. And so this is the story we have. Jeff if Flake, this is, Bob Corker, you can... Jeff name, Flake. These are not moderates. These are middle-of-the-road Republicans that were painted as pretty moderates because they dared to stand in up fact, In terms of their voting record. So if this is the reality we have, then we see our Congress being pulled apart to the left and the right further than they even have as their inclinations and uh, really warned against compromising because compromising or reaching across the the party line or violating any kind of party orthodoxy or loyalty could be the kiss of death, not for general re-election, but for renomination. This is why I think uh, we would be better off moving to rank choice voting. So that people could, uh, which many people in San Francisco are familiar with because it's the way you elect your mayor. But with rank choice voting, you don't vote for a single candidate. You may have a list of candidates. There may be an independent in the mix, maybe a Green Party candidate, maybe a libertarian. Who knows? The point is, you if you want to vote for someone other than the choice the Democratic Party is giving or the choice the Republican Party is giving, you can do so and not waste your vote. Uh, If your first choice doesn't make it and no one wins a majority of first place votes, there's an instant runoff and your vote is transferred to your second choice. And if there's still no majority winner, your vote is transferred to your your third choice. And the result of that is that we are likely to get some moderates coming in and offering a different alternative. And incumbents who want to compromise have another path to victory. If we could have ranked choice voting, and if we could get rid of the sore loser rule, which in 45 states prevents uh, anyone from being on the ballot in the general election if they've lost a party primary, then these incumbents could say, well, I am going to vote for compromise. I am going to take a risk uh, to turn against my party on one issue or another. And if I lose my primary, very good. You know what? I'll meet you again in the general election. I'll run as an independent from the center. I'll test the proposition that the people as a general electorate, are not hopelessly uh, uh, polarized and still have some desire for compromise and reason and an ability or an inclination to reach across the aisle to do something good for the United States of America. And I really, I have met actually by now a number of these members of Congress. They're actually good people many of them anyway, who, who want to do the right thing for the, comprom- uh, for the country. And they are trapped in a very bad system, a bad system of se- incentives in terms of elections, and as you well know, a bad system in terms of campaign finance. Mm-hmm. If we change the system, their behavior will be more nationally minded and less brutally partisanly Polarized. I agree with you 100%. Let me add two quick data points to all the things you've already said. Recent study out of Princeton that says in a real democracy, you would expect that if 100 people, if 100% of people want a policy to happen, it'll happen and zero, it won't happen. 
For the average American, it's just about flip a coin. About 90% people are for stricter gun control laws. Doesn't really happen. Flip a coin. But if you're in the top 0.1% of wealth in the United States, so the political donor class, that rule holds. What the super rich people in the U.S. want happens because they actually donate to political With campaigns. much higher frequency, With much of higher course, frequency. Because that's the way our broken system of campaign finance is working. That's right. So, you know, I just want to say uh, a couple of things uh, before, whenever it is, that we get to Q&A, we get to it. Number one Thanks. is that it isn't hopeless. We are actually seeing a lot of political reforms being adopted in the United States. As you know, um, by voter initiative, it had to happen twice because the politicians uh, erased it and eviscerated it the first time. But by two voter referendums, with the, the second one finally uh, prevailing, uh, the people of Maine have adopted ranked choice voting for the, for the whole state of Maine. And it actually made the difference in electing a member of Congress in, in the last election. And many reforms are now starting to happen, including eliminating gerrymandering, as we've done in the state of California, as Michigan just did, uh, creating motor voter laws and automatic voter registration in many states, giving felons the right to vote by voter initiative in the state of Florida in the last election. So people are organizing they're circulating petitions. They're using the voter initiative. They're pressing their legislatures for reform. And while Washington is broken, I do believe we're starting to see, as we saw in the, in the last progressive era in the United States a century ago, a rising up first at the state level of concrete, energetic, and, and in many cases successful voter energy for political reform. The second thing, just to get to the last two elements of the subtitle of the book is, we really need to do this to repair and revigorate our democracy, not only for ourselves and for our children and because we care about the quality of democracy in the United States, but as we were discussing earlier, Anya, we are not gonna have the credibility uh, and uh, the leverage on the world forum to battle against Russian and Chinese authoritarian influence and authoritarian subversion of democratic values and norms and institutions on the global stage unless we can show that our democracy has more vigor, more integrity, and more capacity to renew itself than it now appears to have. Absolutely. We're no longer the shining city on the hill. That's a beacon for others. Nope. Let me do this. We have lots of audience questions, excellent ones. And I want to spend the second half of the program really talking about the rest of the world. Okay. But let me um, get a couple of questions here on okay. what's going on in the U.S. So um, one question is, can you talk specifically about Citizens United and how it has contributed to polarization? Well, you could probably do that better than I could. Um, and it's interesting. This was exactly the same question I got on Michael Krasny's forum show uh, uh, earlier this morning. This, I think, is one of the worst Supreme Court uh, decisions in the last century. 
equating um, uh, corporate uh, rights to spend unlimited amounts of money in political campaigns with free speech. I think it's a gross distortion of uh, the First Amendment and uh, a real travesty in terms of what it's done to our democracy. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that until we get a different Supreme Court that is inclined philosophically to interpret the First Amendment in a different way, I think we are stuck with this interpretation. And therefore, campaign finance reform is not going to be able to do what you were saying earlier in our conversation. Many European democracies have done successfully, which is get a more rational campaign uh, spending uh, process by imposing limits on campaign spending. And we're going to have to use other means of trying to get at least some more rationality and democracy in our campaign spending. I think we have to have transparent, full transparency in all campaign spending. And that includes... Real transparency. The, yes. Right now it's kind of fake. Well, and This there is, is funded by Americans for Democracy. And Yeah, which tells you nothing. <laughs> we need to know who the donors are to these political action committees, to the dark money uh, committees that are uh, wading through these enormous loopholes to spend unlimited amounts of money without our knowing who the contributors are to these political action funds. We don't know if the Supreme Court would even sustain that modest step, but we've got to test it. The second thing is uh, that there are innovative proposals, Seattle has one, for using voucher systems to uh, incentivize um, public or facilitate public financing of election campaigns. And I think we could scale those up from the municipal level and see how far they could go and what impact they would have. I would just say one other thing. I don't say this in my book. I'll say it here. The people who argue for Citizens United and for this extraordinarily, I would say jaw-droppingly expansive interpretation of the First Amendment to equate Which unlimited speech. corporate spending on political campaigns with free speech, claim that they are, quote, strict constructionists and literalists in, in the interpretation of the Constitution. I think at a minimum, we have to say, you are rewriting the Constitution, and this is exactly what you were criticizing liberals for doing a, a generation ago, uh, and peeling away the myth that this is strict constructionism. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. I would just add, because we were having a conversation before, I used to be a lawyer. I represented, helped represent McCain and Feingold in the first round of reform in 2002 that we actually got passed through the Supreme Court before Citizens United unwound everything. 
And the problem is now you have such a polarized Congress that passing meaningful federal level campaign finance reform is seems quixotic. It's right. impossible. And with the current Supreme Court, as you said, it's very difficult. That's why, as you described, all of the initiative is at the states. And there's another question here, which is, what can we all do about it? And I think you've already answered it in most part, which is get involved in some of these initiatives. Well, um, I end the book on a very hopeful note because I do see these extraordinary citizen initiatives taking shape uh, from the grassroots. You know, there's a really uh, impressive uh, civic organization. It's really a, a network of efforts called Represent Us. Josh Silver. Get Josh Silver, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this organization has been getting voter initiatives on the ballot and adopted, you know, not just in liberal states like Massachusetts, which is now probably going to have on the ballot the, be the second state to have on the ballot and vote on ranked choice voting, but in places that would surprise you. I mentioned Michigan, uh, which uh, got the motor voter law and an end to gerrymandering and some other good things. But in, I forget whether it was North or South Dakota, uh, they passed a very comprehensive democratic reform bill uh, that really tightened up uh, and Im imposed uh, uh, transparency uh, requirements on lobbying, uh, and other very good things for democratic reform. Now then, the state legislature gutted the provision, uh, but um, at least they showed what the voters can do. And you've and had we'll several examples where voters passed sensible reform. The partisan legislature gutted it, and then voters repassed the reform. Well, is and that great. is the story of Maine, uh, where the voters ultimately imposed it by taking the state legislature's cynical, in the middle of the night, stealth repeal of the first voter initiative for ranked choice voting, circulated petitions for something called Maine is Unique in this regard, the people's veto, and then repassed the voter initiative adopting ranked choice voting in Maine by twice the margin that they had passed it before, eight percentage point margin rather than four. And some of the people who voted for ranked choice voting in Maine the second time in November, uh, in, in June of 2018, voted for it not because they actually liked ranked choice voting, although I think we're going to find more and more as people use it, they do like it. They were just so outraged by the cynicism and, you know, kind of autocratic mentality of what the state legislature had done to completely disregard and nullify the will of the people in a voter initiative uh, that they doubled the margin of victory from the previous voter initiative. Great. Another one of our guests asks, what's your opinion on the Electoral College? Well, I think we should get rid of the Electoral College. I think it's, a, a, it's a, an anachronism and an abomination. And I'll tell you something uh, that is, um, that's really interesting. If you go back to the founding debates in the American Constitution, a major motive for the Electoral College, and this is why I begin the book, the three quotes at the front of the book, with a quote from Al Alexander Hamilton about the dangers of demagoguery. 
a major motive for the Electoral College was to have a method of indirect election of the President of the United States by, now I'm sorry, back then it was wise men, but let's say wise people who would be able to be alert to the uh, deceptive skills of the potential demagogue who could become a tyrant. And so the idea was that the Electoral College would be a body of people of prudence and experience and good judgment who would use that judgment to ensure that we did not get a demagogue and potential tyrant who would eviscerate checks and balances uh, if he were to be elected president. And I'd say, well, that worked out really well. <laughs> but as a practical matter, Anya, I think you'd agree with me on Well, this. it worked that we're, way for a while, but that's not where we are now. Uh, we're not going to get a constitutional amendment um, to change the Constitution to eliminate uh, the Electoral College. There is the National Popular Vote Movement, uh, whereby state legislatures are passing identical pieces of legislation under coordination, saying when a number of states whose electoral college votes equal 270, namely a majority, pass this bill, we will all agree to instruct our electors in the electoral college to vote for the winner of the national popular vote and not necessarily the winner of the vote in our state. Now, theoretically, if that passed, it would... Uh, ensure that the winner of the national popular vote would become president of the United States. What we don't know is if the Supreme Court would let that stand if it came to that. Right. Let's now move on to the rest of your okay. wonderful book, because you have so many chapters about the rest of the world. And I want to start with the chapter that intrigued me most, which is on China's influence. You were part of a Hoover Institution report on China's influence and sharp power in the U.S. and elsewhere. Can you describe a little bit how you see their influence campaign? Well, China is very different than Russia. Uh, they have not yet intervened uh, uh, through diverse digital and subterranean digital means in an, in an election campaign the way Russia did in 2016, although, <laughs> you know, buckle your seatbelts, it wouldn't shock me if they did so in 2020. Um, and Donald Trump should think about that very carefully, actually, when he uh, argues that, you know, our electoral uh, machinery is okay and doesn't need shoring up. Um, but in any case, China has been intervening in Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, in Europe, in the United States, and in many other democracies and more open societies to penetrate universities, to penetrate think tanks, to penetrate uh, the diaspora, Chinese language media, uh, and to get their narrative out and to try and intimidate and suppress the representation of diverse points of view. When you have the University of California at San Diego being warned, uh, and when you have the Chinese consulate manipulating the Chinese Students and Scholars Association at the University of California at San Diego to warn the university that if they host the Dalai Lama, terrible things will happen in terms of funding and so on. 
when you have Chinese rejected that pressure. Correct. But, you know, what other pressure may be coming uh, on universities through the mobilization of tens of millions of dollars of gifts and grants? We don't know. We do know that many people we talk to who uh, are affiliated with think tanks in the United States are worried about the flows of money to think tanks in the United States and the way it may be inducing them to pull back and um, moderate uh, or preempt criticism that we have of that they have of China. We have actually a pretty shocking instance of this that I unfortunately cannot talk about, but I know in deep personal detail of a think tank that did this recently. We have instances of American university professors, including some of the ones who were involved in our working group to report on and document uh, Chinese influence activities in the United States, who admit to self-censorship because uh, they want to be able to get a visa to go back to, the United, uh, to, to China. And they worry that if they're too blunt in their criticism, they might not be able to go back to the country that is the principal thing that they are studying. We have 150 colleges and universities in the United States where Chinese language instruction is being funded, the curriculum is being written, and the teachers are being uh, commissioned and mobilized from China by the Ministry of Education of the Chinese Communist Party state. And they come and teach through something that are called Confucius Institutes. The contracts of these institutes are not transparent, They're not visible for inspection, even by the faculty of these institutions. And I think we have to question whether there is something wrong with this picture. Uh, And and then we have the Chinese Students and Scholars Associations present, again, on probably over 200 campuses in the United States and throughout Europe and Australia and so on, that are frequently being given instructions by the Chinese consulate on protests they should make, if there's going to be a speaker from Tibet, an event involving Taiwan or something. And we're feeling, we're feeling that our own students from China uh, do not have freedom of intellectual inquiry and expression. And that many people are being deterred and uh, intimidated in their ability to criticize, inquire, or speak openly, talking about freedom of speech. And finally, if you look at the Chinese language media, newspapers, radio stations, and so on, in the United States, in Australia, and so on, you'll see that there's been a dramatic change in the editorial line uh, of these um, media enterprises, and that most of them now are parroting the Beijing party line. And this is a very... Because they're paid to do so. Huh? Because they're paid to do so. Uh, Yeah, and because the ownership now is an ownership structure uh, that is uh, deliberately been uh, engineered through purchase or uh, or, uh, creation of new media enterprises uh, to be sympathetic to, if not instruments of, 
the propaganda line of the Chinese Communist Party state. We are not talking about developing countries on the margins of international influence. We're talking about Chinese language media in the United States of America, in Australia, in Canada and Europe. Exactly. Well, I happen to agree with you wholeheartedly because I've personally experienced these. You know, if you give this paper, you won't get the visa. We won't publish your book in China because you mentioned Tiananmen Square. We won't publish your book in Hong Kong because you mentioned Tiananmen Square. Let me just play devil's advocate, though, because you and I are in heated agreements with this. Some people might say, well, is this really that different? Two things. One, A, this isn't missionary-style advocacy for the world to become like China. It's actually different from what the U.S. does around the world, which is to promote democracy. It's just seeking influence, not to change governments to be more like the Chinese. That's one. And two, the argument made against this is, well, isn't this just like the Alliance Francaise, the Goethe Institute? Don't all countries do this? And or the don't American we Cultural Centers. That's right. So how is it different? So it's uh, different in two respects. Let me come to the second, and then I'll back up to the first. Um, the Alliance Francaise, the American Cultural Centers, the Voice of America, the exchange uh, Eisenhower fellowships uh, that we fund uh, for people to come and visit the United States, these are projections of soft power. The purpose of soft power is to attract and persuade through means that are open and... Uh, and persuasive. They're not coercive. The best way to understand what China is doing on the... There's some of that in the Chinese approach, but only some. The predominant means I have outlined and other things that we talk about in our report stand apart from soft power and represent the newer phenomenon that you referred to with the words sharp power uh, in uh, the following respects that were noted by the former Australian Prime Minister when he was Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull uh, during his prime ministership, which was a seminal period in Australian history in waking up the country to the danger they faced. They are covert, coercive, and corrupting. They are not transparent. The Chinese consulate in San Francisco or Los Angeles or wherever it may be is not saying uh, we have contacted our Chinese overseas students and asked them to pressure the university not to invite the Dalai Lama or not to uh, hold a video conference with uh, President Ma Ying-jeou when we did so on the Stanford campus with respect to Taiwan. It's covert. A lot of this is subterranean. Secondly, it's corrupting. Money is changing hands. And politicians, particularly in developing countries, are being just being bought off. Journalists are being flown to China and given money and, and lavish treatment in a way that isn't persuasion. It's something more sinister. Um, and uh, uh, there is an element of coercion here. We have Chinese uh, Americans who are being threatened in terms of what might happen to their families uh, if they speak up and criticize. To come to the first point, 
I think this has changed under Xi Jinping. Uh, China had no interest in trying to present a different model for most of the period from uh, Deng Xiaoping's area through uh, the presidency and uh, party leadership of Hu Jintao. With the rise of Xi Jinping and China's kind of entering the world stage now as a more self-confident superpower, I think China does now want to, and if you read the speeches of Xi Jinping, you see this, uh, increasingly present the China model of what they call strong leadership, let's face it, authoritarianism. And if you look at what's going on in Xinjiang, Xinjiang province and the use of this uh, technology of digital surveillance, in some ways neo-totalitarianism, combined with what they claim is capitalism, but what you know is a very, very distorted and state-directed form of capitalism. Uh, and in any case, they claim this model of strong state-directed leadership and, and private enterprise, in thick quotation marks, is superior to the decadent, uh, purposeless, drifting, ineffectual systems of democracy in the U.S. and Europe. And so they are challenging democratic systems and norms now on the world stage and in international forums, including the United Nations, in a way that they weren't doing six, eight, ten years ago before Xi Jinping came to power. Mm -hmm. Good. Let me, now that we're all depressed, <laughs> let me go to a more optimistic point. And two audience members have asked about this. You, at the end of your book, talk about some hopeful stories. You talk about Malaysia. But let's talk about what's happening in Hong Kong okay. just this week. Because that's a perfect example of people pushing back against everything you just described. Well, Malaysia, I think, is a very uh, hopeful trend because they uh, rose up and used the process of competitive elections, even in a non-democracy, um, to achieve democracy. And, of course, we've had other electoral revolutions uh, uh, around the world that have brought democracy in Ukraine and Georgia and so on, the color revolutions. And this is precisely what Vladimir Putin fears and why he's so paranoid about having any serious opposition. I'm much more worried about Hong Kong. Uh, to say I am inspired by this latest round of 20% of the population of Hong Kong, over a million people pouring into the streets uh, to oppose this extradition treaty that's being demanded by Beijing, doesn't begin to capture the depth of my admiration and awe for the people of Hong Kong uh, seeking to stand up for their, their civil liberties in the face of the you know, tightening noose around their necks from Beijing. Because it is now so difficult. It used to not be difficult to stand up for democracy in Hong Kong. And now people are being extradited. People are being punished. Well, when I talk to friends in Hong Kong, they no longer, um, they censor themselves. Yeah. 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 And uh, so the cloud of media control and what had been one of the free freest medias of the world. And again, Chinese uh, Communist Party penetration of the media, purchase of the media, and bending it to the party line, 
uh, and uh, legal action against protesters, including the very brave leaders of the previous round of protests uh, in the Umbrella Movement. All of this is just incredibly worrisome. But nothing represents a more existential threat to the future of freedom in Hong Kong than this proposed extradition bill that the Beijing leaders are now demanding, that the Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam, is kind of uh, um, loyally uh, putting forward on behalf of the Beijing leaders, and that looks set to pass through uh, Hong Kong's legislator, the, uh, legislature, the Legislative Council. This bill would enable Beijing to indict under their fictitious judicial system anybody in Hong Kong they want. Not only a resident of mainland China who had taken refuge in Hong Kong, but anybody else Which who happens already to doing. be there. They're well, they, they have not been able people. to do it successfully. Right. They've kidnapped a few people and brought them back to Hong Kong. But they've not been legally able... Um, transparently able to demand the extradition of Hong Kong residents. That will change if this bill is passed, and then the rule of law will be dead in Hong Kong. And the dream people had, perhaps with illusions, that after the handover in 1997, at least they would be able to preserve their own autonomous rule of law and their own system of civil liberties for 50 years, half of which are now gone, that dream will be over. And um, how Xi Jinping can think that he can do this to Hong Kong and then pivot and turn to the people of Taiwan and say, we'll give you the same wonderful deal that we gave Hong Kong, one country, two systems. What world is he living in? That's right. Well, the perfect segue to another question from the audience, which is about Taiwan. When I now talk to folks in the tech community, they're suddenly quite worried that because most semiconductor fabs are actually in Taiwan, within five, ten years, you have a situation where, for example, you elect a very pro-mainland China government in Taiwan, the mainland absorbs it. And even though the U.S. has a defense treaty with Taiwan, how are you going to militarily intervene for a country that isn't defending itself? Do you see that as a reasonable scenario? Or if not, what other scenarios do you see? I see it as a plausible scenario. And without going into details, I think if you look at China's long history of united front tactics, the Chinese Communist Party, and the way they try and penetrate and use money and use alliances and use pressure. Uh, we see this happening in Taiwan now. And by the way, China has not used the kind of digital uh, social media interventions in an election campaign in the United States the way Russia did. But they have done it in Taiwan. They did it last November in the local government elections. And you may see that intervention as well in the January 2020 presidential elections. So people in Taiwan are very, very worried. And I think it is not unreasonable for them to be worried. 
that their political process could become co-opted, penetrated, and corrupted uh, by the communist authorities in Beijing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have about 10 minutes left, and there are two big topics that we haven't covered, okay. and I'd like to cover them. One is your excellent chapter on Russia, both what happened and how we now effectively push back against Putin. And the second one is everything you say about social media and where we go from here. Well, and of course, the two are related. <laughs> and the two since, are related. Uh, <laughs> Russia brilliantly used... Those uh, are two easy problems media. to solve in 10 minutes. <laughs> So uh, if you want to know what happened in Russia, of course, I tr uh, with Russia's intervention in the 2015-2016 election, of course, I try and offer uh, a distilled summary uh, in, in my book, but uh, the longer summary is in the Mueller report, and it is devastating, and it is alarming. And as the then uh, FBI director uh, testified to the Congress, they haven't stopped, James Comey, uh, shortly after uh, the election. They haven't stopped. They'll be coming back. Uh, their purpose is to destroy uh, the image and integrity and unity and cohesion of American democracy, of European democracies, and of the European Union. And they will use any cynical means of penetration, of false presence on social media, of manipulation of racial and ethnic hatred to do that. And I do believe that they got lucky. Trump caught fire in 2016. I think they went from merely trying to sabotage uh, American unity and create uh, division and polarization in the United States, to intensify polarization in the United States, to realizing they could actually help elect a man they thought would be more sympathetic to their interests, and they did so. Uh, we need to fortify our, our election administration systems. I believe they will be coming after the voter registration systems next time. They penetrated, we know, uh, from the FBI, the voter registration systems in 20 states digitally in 2016. Next time, they may try and knock millions of people off the rolls in the weeks before the election. We can't tolerate this. We have to harden our systems of election administration. We need much more vigor and transparency now bridging to social media of our... Um, uh, of our social media companies in terms of who, who's buying ads. There is a, a bill in the Congress called the Honest Ads Act that would require the social media companies to reveal who is purchasing ads in great detail um, that it might have any political character at all, certainly during an election campaign, but really I think it has to be uh, in advance of them. And the social and media... Just interject not passed yet because of our polarization, but right. some social media companies like Facebook are already trying to do it. Right, voluntarily. right. But we need, uh, we need to act legislatively. And I think, rep I repeat again, if Republicans think, let's slow motion this because it really worked in our favor in 2016, mm -hmm. and they think, well, Russia's going to be on our side again, so let's slow motion this again. 
First of all, they might be on the side of the Republican nominee for president in 2020, but they might go after Marco Rubio and a lot of other Republican senators who have been very forthright in standing up to Vladimir Putin. And secondly, you know, if Russia can do this, Iran can do this, China can do this. And if you're the Republican Party is, my advice to you is don't be so sure that other foreign social media penetration is going to be to your advantage. Uh, and at some point, we've just got to decide politics stops at a certain point, And we're all Americans, and we've got to defend the American national interest in this regard. Um, I want to say as well, Anya, on the social media front, there's much more that the social media companies must do to vet content and uh, remove or downgrade the importance and virality, the visibility of content that is manifestly false, hateful, um, vengefully uh, polarizing uh, in a manipulative way, uh, using false information and disinformation and so on. Facebook has said it's going to create an advisory committee to advise it in this regard. I think we need more independent and robust uh, civic participation and social media councils to perform this role. Our global digital policy incubator uh, at Stanford held a workshop in February with Article 19 and with the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, David Kay, where we looked at the concept of social media councils and developed certain ideas and models of how this could work. Uh, in the social media sphere to get at least some more restraint and moderation in this regard. Uh, and we've got to uh, move down this road. I think we need to do much more to train young people uh, and train all people who are online, on social media, to recognize fake information, to question what they read on the internet, to uh, issue hateful uh, and polarizing disinformation and to be more judicious, discriminating and responsible users of content online. Absolutely. Let me say, I thought your chapter on social media was really nuanced, which is great because you have this world where three years ago, the social media companies could do no wrong and they were hopelessly naive and had their head in the sand. Now they can do no right. And actually, they're moving slowly and sometimes yeah. having to be pulled and dragged, but they're moving in the right direction in, a, in an era where there's a complete absence of regulatory control because our, our regulatory system is hopelessly polarized and divided and just hasn't caught up with what's going on. You talked about some of the things they're already doing, which is Facebook went from having basically very little content control to now having 30,000 people who do this full time. Twitter, nowhere near that much, right? And so right now you have this imbalance of what companies are doing, arguably even with Facebook, still not enough, but we haven't had a conversation as a society about what's right, how much content are you Mm -hmm. controlling? And where is the limit of the First Amendment here? And how broad do you go? And what do you recommend but how do the people here engage in this debate? Well, I, you know, the easiest and, uh, you know, uh, 
most ready reflex is to write your member of Congress and, and demand uh, legislative action, including on the Honest Ads Act. But I think we have access to these public forums, right? And we are all citizens with voice on Facebook and other social media networks. And I think that people need to become active in advocating for uh, both responsible so social media company platform conduct and for legislation. But I'll tell you one thing every citizen can do. Every citizen in the United States lives in a school district and every citizen in a school district can press for their school district. There's a lot that can be done at the local level to introduce classes on responsible civic use of uh, digital media and what we call social media literacy. This is crucial for the next generation to be able to distinguish fact from fiction and to learn how to use social media responsibly and not shallowly, naively, or vengefully. Thank you. We have time for only one last question, unfortunately, okay. and I've saved the most oh. optimistic one for last. Okay. Leave us with one reason for hope. Well, uh, my reason for hope is that I see what's happening in the grassroots of the United States. I saw what was happening in Maine, and I dedicated my book, uh, One of the Seven People, to the woman who led the campaign for ranked choice voting uh, in the United States. And I urge you to read that story in chapter 13 of the book uh, very carefully. These people, when the state legislature of Maine stabbed the people in the back in a midnight session in October to repeal ranked choice voting and, and knowing that if there was going to be a people's veto by repealing it in October, they would set in, in motion a timeline that would force the grassroots activists for electoral reform in the state of Maine to circulate the petitions to get the people's veto on the ballot in the dead of winter, in the freezing cold, not realizing it would be one of the worst winters in Maine in at least half a century with something called a cyclone bomb dropping temperatures down to zero degrees and the people gathering the signatures for these petitions in the shopping centers and the places you gather them, having to stand out for a few minutes and then go back in their cars and turn on the heaters to warm up with the gel in their big pens freezing uh, when they were out on the, the pavement trying to collect signatures. This is what they confronted on their way to gathering 77,000 signatures to put this back on the ballot and win by, as I told you, twice the margin that they prevailed in before. It's not just Maine. It's happening uh, in Massachusetts now. It's happening in Minnesota. It's happening in the Dakotas. I didn't even mention Alaska, where the citizens mobilized for um, a package of bills that represent us had pushed to get on the ballot. And the legislature in Alaska freaked out that if this voter initiative made it to the ballot, uh, there might be so much citizen participation in the midterm election in Alaska that many of them might be defeated. And so they passed most of the voter initiative in the state legislature so there wouldn't be that catalytic effort on the ballot in November. This is what's going on, not just in blue states or purple states, 
But red states, where Americans, whatever their party or ideological orientation, want more choice, want more democracy, and want more transparency. And I think the future is on our side because the people are going to rise up and demand it. Wonderful. With that. Thank you. That's a perfect closing. Thank you to Dr. Larry Diamond, professor at Stanford and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, also the author of Ill Winds, Setting Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. We want to thank our audiences here and on radio, TV, and on the Internet. I also want to remind everyone that there are copies of Larry's book for sale right outside the room, and he'd be willing to sign them for you. I'm Anya Manuel, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you.